Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, welcome to Sibylline Podcast series. I'm Goyu, lead Asia-Pacific analyst. Joining me today are my two fellow APAR analysts, Aidan Mordecai and Hans Horan. With the Beijing Winter Olympics opening ceremony, today we will discuss the broad geopolitical risk and implications related to what will be the second Olympic Games that held during the COVID pandemic. We've seen the Games has been shrouded by a lot of much publicized controversies not least the issues with you know, China, China's human rights record, and subsequent Western government's diplomatic boycotts. How have the games been viewed among the public in Asia? Aidan, perhaps starting with you. Thank you very much, Hugo. At least in the Southeast Asia, it hasn't been a big issue. The Winter Olympics is not very high on people's agenda for a number of reasons, primarily because they have little stake in it as competitors. And from the geopolitical angle, there's little appetite in Southeast Asia to get involved in this larger US-China tit-for-tat where possible, and there's no desire to pick a side as such. And and so there hasn't been very much strong calls to to diplomatically boycott it. And as a result, it hasn't really been uh, on the agenda as much as it has in the West, for example. However, in Australia, where they've clearly uh, allied with the US and the UK, the country has diplomatically boycotted the Games, which of course was not well received by China, but I imagine not a surprise at all. And while it's, it's not a determining factor of ongoing poor relations in any way, it does contribute to those strained relations, which has also resulted in a trade sanctions between the two countries, which has made it difficult for businesses in Australia with especially if they rely on the Chinese market or they export products to the Chinese market. Right, but I suppose for the Aussies, once competition starts, they will all be cheering for our sporting teams, knowing how much they are into force and cheering for their national teams. Uh, Hans, what about in your region of interest, for example, Japan? In Japan, it's been quite interesting. It's been a very mixed response, depending on where in the political kind of spectrum you fall. So from more conservative side in terms of the LDP, the ruling LDP party and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, it's been ambivalent to say the best. They've recently come out with a statement condemning the human rights kind of issues within China, but they haven't gone so far as to name specific issues or really called out the Beijing Olympics. Nevertheless, we've seen China not necessarily take too kindly to that type of activity, especially considering that China was fully supportive of the Tokyo Olympics a couple months ago. However, if you look at kind of social media users, we've seen kind of what netizens have been saying about the games. Again, it's also mixed, where we've seen people very much condemn the alleged human rights kind of violations that China's been kind of holding. And they've been talking about how China may not be the best place to hold the Beijing Olympics at the moment. Interesting enough, we've also seen people who were very much kind of against the, the Tokyo Olympics be very quiet against the Beijing Olympics. And we've seen people very much note that where we've seen where in Tokyo, we saw very much a large kind of protest movement. We've seen a lot of people kind of act out against it. We haven't seen as much activity against the Beijing Olympics, despite the human rights angle. So we have seen some netizens kind of call people out on that, especially kind of the more prominent political journalists and uh, media outlets who have been critical of the Tokyo Olympics, but slightly less critical of the Beijing Olympics. So uh, again, it's been uh, a bit mixed to say, to say the best. 
Right, that's very interesting. Looking at China, I'd be surprised, you know, the pervading sentiment is one of strong support, passion, being very passionate, being very enthusiastic about the fact that Beijing is going to be kind of a city to host both summer and winter games. And underscoring all this is kind of a very strong sense of a national pride, very much aligned with the official narratives. So there's been a, a huge amount of media-generated positive material, positive coverage about games in promoting the games, in promoting facilities, winter sports, and by and large, taking this on board and really, really looking forward to this. But there are two issues or interesting trends that have emerged in perhaps the last two weeks. One is the COVID pandemic. Now, we all know that China has been experiencing outbreaks since the end of last year. They have constantly reported local outbreaks in a few areas, including Beijing and surrounding areas such as Tianjin, driven by uh, both Delta and the uh, Omicron variants. So what we're seeing is people, especially on social media, very much in the minority, but has voiced a little bit more about their concern about this COVID-19 infection rise and potential impact the game might have on the COVID-19 situations. Not forget that China, by and large, using a very zero COVID strategy, but has managed the pandemic relatively successfully in terms of keeping the infection level very, very low. So now we are seeing cases being reported in quite a few cities and people maybe starting a little bit worried. Another thing is also related to COVID, but more from local residents in Beijing, because you know the authority has really stepped up in their methods in terms of protecting Beijing, safeguarding the Olympic Games. So that inevitably induced some level of inconvenience for people living in Beijing, whether that's become more difficult for people to leave Beijing and or to traveling back, you know, thinking of the timing, it couldn't be worse because it's the Chinese New Year and traditionally people will head home or to their hometown uh, for family reunions and people, when they couldn't do it because of the COVID restrictions, we have noticed there's been some negative voices uh, criticizing the game and criticizing the, the organizers. And so that's one aspect. The other aspect is uh, more attached to geopolitics, the ongoing tensions between or, or strained relations between China and Taiwan and the fact that Taiwan initially decided to not go to the opening ceremony, but later reversed the decision after well, being requested by the IOC, really. And also there's a question about, okay, how Chinese media and people should refer the delegation from Taiwan, which their official name is Chinese Taipei. But we have noticed there's some Chinese uh, state media and officials being, being referred to the, the team as China Taiwan. So again, the, the whole debate of Taiwan's sovereignty, which Beijing see as breakaway uh, province, that could potentially be played out in the Olympic arena. 
So Hugo, you mentioned some of the concerns and grievances that the Chinese public have kind of related to COVID risks to the games and disruptions that, that local residents are experiencing because of the antivirus methods. Uh, what, what is the current situation, both kind of inside and outside the Olympic bubble? Have we seen any concerns of kind of unrest or other type of like risks that could be an issue for the games and some of the sponsors? Yeah, that's a great question. No, we haven't seen any level of unrest or risk of unrest. Outside the bubble, China has been reporting about double digits, sometimes 20, sometimes 40 sort of uh, local cases, locally transmitted cases every day, which for China is probably the longest sustained outbreak since the first wave, since the initial outset of the pandemic. So for China, it's very unusual and people were not used to it. And that hence the concern about, okay, now we're having a lot of participants and journalists coming in from the games and remembering how Chinese state media been portraying, you know, China's success of combating the virus versus the chaos, the high death numbers and high case numbers being reported in many of Western countries. It's naturally sort of for you know, citizens to, to become more concerned about this, this issue. We see that at this moment in time, they are more expressing their concerns, not to the point of a lot of calls to, for the game to be halted or to be cancelled, but more about, okay, what if we have a bigger outbreak? What if the bubble was not as tight as should be and the virus spread from the game into the general public, into the to outside community? Within the bubble, I think the latest report from the organizers is that so far they have detected about 230 positive cases. And the cases has been on the rise in daily tally within the bubble in the past few days. That's partly due to we have peak arrivals uh, to Beijing in the past few days. And so we have more athletes come in and last test number uh, was much bigger. They also mentioned about uh, 11 cases of hospitalization within the bubble. None of them, thankfully, were serious. By the way, there's no transmission within the bubble being reported. So all in all, it's, we will see it is a still manageable situation and the game schedule and the operation is highly unlikely for the time being, judging by the latest data, be sort of disrupted or, or cancelled. I think it's actually quite interesting you say that because if you look at how people are comparing, especially kind of journalists are comparing the experience of going between the Tokyo Olympics and the Beijing Olympics, people are saying very much that the in the, the Beijing bubble is much stricter than the, the Tokyo equivalent, whereas journalists, when they were in Japan, they had the ability to travel by car by themselves unrestricted to between game venues, whereas in, in Beijing, it's very much reported that there's going to be very much a, a strict control about movement and the people within the bubble, even within the bubble, there's more security measures to make people aren't moving around too much, but especially kind of the transport between venues I've heard is much stricter where everything is very much state controlled. You're being chaperoned by individuals. You're not really stopping in between. You're going from one venue to another to prevent, as you said, an outbreak to the outside community from. Absolutely. I mean, uh, in Tokyo, I heard, you know, people can pop down to the local 7-Eleven convenience stores. That's this is ubiquitous in Japan, um, but no chance for that happening in Beijing, perhaps, you know, they have, they are going to be using dedicated transport, whether it's uh, cars, 
coaches or indeed high-speed trains connected. You know, let's not forget Beijing's game is, is going to be in three uh, zones. And so people will be wishing off to other zones by planes. And those are dedicated, uh, will only be operating within the bubble during the games and will not be accessible by the general public. So you can see the level of details that have gone into this so-called closed system and try to prevent the spread of our uh, virus from inside to outside and vice versa. And so much so, you know, before the game, there was a notice kind of spurred a lot of social media discussions in China, basically saying, you know, even in the event of a traffic accident with game's official vehicle, the general public shouldn't become too close or come into contact with anyone on board uh, that particular vehicle and should just call police to sort it out. You can see how tight they want to keep the bubble will be. And you, yeah, compared to Tokyo, well, it is a much stricter system. The pandemic's obviously added a lot of complications for organizers to host the game safely. Certainly must have um, dampened the game's commercial revenue as a result. Apart from infection control, however, has COVID-19 brought any or exacerbated any other operational risks, do you think, for the games, uh, organizers, or maybe associates of the games, such as sponsors? Yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting aspect for, for many people that they are considering but are considering is the cybersecurity risks uh, related to the games. The, the games, of course, is a big international event, and there's always going to be some type of cyber risk associated with that because there's going to be very high-profile sponsors. There's going to be the games organizers themselves, along with the IOC, that, that will be very high-profile targets for both state and non-state actors. I think the usual suspects in terms of cyber threat actors for these type of events being uh, North Korea and Russia will be a little bit less of a threat for this particular game, namely for Russia. Of course, they were banned from participating in the in the last couple of games because of doping allegations and have been known to launch cyber attacks against the Olympic Games, looking at Pyeongchang, for instance. But the issue there is now Putin himself is going to be attending the game in Beijing, very much significantly lowering the likelihood of there being a cyber attack while he's there. Also because, again, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping are known to have relatively close relations. North Korea, on the other hand, is very much economically and security-wise very dependent on Beijing and will do very little to uh, antagonize Beijing during the games, you know, the, the, the duration of the games. So I think from those kind of those two top tier threat actors for the Beijing games, there's a, lo- a lower threat, but there is always, of course, the, the threat of there being some type of financially motivated actor, be it ransomware actors of such, targeting the Beijing games. We've seen a kind of crackdown on ransomware activity over the last year from governments across the world, China being no exception, of course. So I think they'll be on high alert for this. And we have already not necessarily seen inklings of, oh, there being cyber attacks being launched against the, the Beijing games, but the FBI, for instance, has published a, a private industry notification stating that there's the possibility of there being some type of malicious cyber activity launched against the Olympics. They didn't say that they have any evidence to support that there's currently attacks being planned. But of course, considering the amount of money they can make from targeting such a big event, you can't rule it out. But I think the biggest threat personally for the Beijing games will always be kind of the financially motivated ransomware groups or hacktivist groups of the likes, people who are trying to express political grievances against the Beijing government. Again, the alleged human rights allegations in uh, Xinjiang and in Tibet, of course, as well. So things of those nature, I think probably would be the biggest in terms of cybersecurity risks. And more minorly, you also have the issues relating to the Beijing 2022 app, despite the fact that the IOC has, has kind of firmly denied the allegations that there is uh, security issues with data being held on that app. There's always the possibility, again, of hacktivists launching attacks that could 
potentially show their grievances with there being such a, a data privacy concern. So there's always those issues. Yeah, I think also besides cybersecurity, we already alluded to is um, the reputational risk for the games organizers and commercial partners and sponsors. Obviously, you know, you have this, the boycott movement being uh, advocated by uh, human rights groups, but also uh, diplomatic boycotts by a few countries. In this context, you know, what we have seen is, uh, yeah, conspicuously, the commercial partners have been very quiet in terms of you know promoting any Beijing 2022 themes advertisement campaigns. Usually before the games, we would have seen a lot of uh, TV, the social media advert campaigns for game sponsors and you know partners. But for this one, I think they are being quite cautious and didn't want to attract a lot of criticism for their association the games and by extension with the Chinese government. So that's something that, you know, we see a lot of uh, reputational management or PR uh, management in play here, which is perhaps quite unique for these Beijing games compared to other uh, Olympics. Lastly, I think in our region, we also have had a small matter of North Korea suddenly kicking off a very intense flurry of uh, missile activities lately. So Hans, why is Pinrang doing this right now? Um, how do you think would this drive geopolitical risks for the coming weeks? Yeah, I guess that's, that's the million dollar question, Hugo, about why North Korea has been launching all these, these missile activities. But it's, from my perspective at least, I think it's very much kind of strategically planned to kind of apply pressure to South Korea ahead of its presidential elections, which are happening in March, and also very importantly to do it before the, the Beijing games take place. Uh, as I said previous, uh, Beijing is North Korea's most important security and economic partner, and they will do anything and everything to make sure they don't sour relations with them through their activities. But at the same time, they want to make sure that they engage in activities that are in their own interest, uh, hence the missile testing activities. We've seen this previously that ahead of important political events or important uh, diplomatic events that North Korea will launch some type of provocative activity, either it be a cyber attack or in this case being ballistic missile launches or cruise missile launches, as according to North Korean state media. And this is very much targeted towards the idea of applying pressure to its regional stakeholders, be it the U.S., be it uh, South Korea. So you can very much tell who they're targeting based on what type of missiles they're launching. So if they're very much engaging in that short-range ballistic missile activity, it's much more likely that that's targeted towards kind of the closer countries, be it South Korea and, and Japan, whereas it, the, the last missile test, be it the uh, the medium range missiles, the, those much are more targeted towards the U.S., seeing as those missiles have the ability to try and actually target Guam, for instance, they have the range for that. So you can see very much that they're targeting very specific individuals, very specific cases. But in this case, again, the majority of them have been these short range missiles that have the ability to hit Seoul and uh, the rest of South Korea. So it's very much trying to approach and apply pressure to, to South Korean government. Uh, as I said, the election's coming up. Uh, Moon Jae-in, the current president, is reaching the end of his term, five-year term. And uh, we're seeing that the two, the two leading candidates being the Democratic Party, Lee Jae-myun, and the Conservative Party's Yoon uh, Suk-yeol, they, they have very much kind of contrasting opinions on North Korea. And uh, for instance, Yoon has very much said that he would much want to deploy additional FAD on South Korea and much more take a much more hardline stance on North Korean kind of provocative activities, harboring back to kind of the, the previous conservative administration before Moon, whereas uh, Lee Jae-myun 
to a certain extent wants to continue with with Moon Jae-in's kind of diplomatic approach towards North Korea and very much kind of continue having open channels with, with the reclusive regime and Kim Jong-un and very much try and ensure that there is some type of dialogue and not go back to that period where they had no diplomatic lines open, they had no communication at all. It was very much just kind of word of mouth or through, through the media that they were communicating to a certain extent. So I think that very much will be what North Korea is trying to do with these missile tests, is trying to probe how the two leading candidates will deal with North Korea if they become president and to what extent they can push their buttons, if you will. What, what's the line in the sand that these two people will, will draw in terms of you know, North Korea's missile activity or any other type of provocative activity in the future? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I think you made there, especially about sort of a kind of front-loading North Korea's missile activities so that it happens, mostly happen before the games, but perhaps maybe making a pause during the game so that it doesn't antagonize too much on Beijing. But also with uh, obviously the South Korea's presidential election in mind on 9th of March, interesting to see what Pyongyang will do next after the game's conclusion. Bear in mind, we will still we will still have the Paralympic Games coming in much later in March. So, yeah, interesting time to to watch North Korea certainly. Okay, so that's our discussion on the Beijing 2022 Olympic Winter Games and associated geopolitical risks, COVID implications, and public perception. For the next part, we will look ahead for the coming weeks on the important events across the globe. So, Aidan, what events are on our team's radar for next week? Well, in Costa Rica, on the 6th of February, there are general elections to be held. Seeing as a presidential candidate must get 40% of the vote to be elected outright, and of the 25 presidential candidates, none of them are polling over 20%. So, a runoff is most likely between the two leading candidates, which are expected to be at the moment former president. Jose Maria Figueres of the Centrist National Liberation Party and a former Vice President, Lineth Saborio of the Centre-Right Social Christian Unity Party. Any runoff will be held on uh, the 3rd of April. The leftist ruling Citizens Action Party is set to lose their grip on power with President constitutionally barred from seeking immediate re-election. Whereas on the 7th of February, Morocco is set to resume inbound and outbound air travel after closing borders to all passengers' flights in November in a bid to prevent the spread of Omicron, though authorities have not yet released details of entry requirements and COVID-19 protocols, although it will provide a much-needed boost for the country's hospitality and tourism sectors. Also in the Middle East, nuclear talks between the world powers and Iran are set to resume this week for the ninth round. Officials warn that this is likely to be the final round of negotiations amid a worrying advancement in Tehran's nuclear capabilities. Okay, so... That's a quite a lot of events to watch out on the side of us enjoying the winter sport uh, extravaganza. And finally, in the week of we celebrate the Lunar New Year, we really like to wish you all a happy and healthy in the year of the tiger. Thank you for tuning in for today. If you have any queries, please contact us via info at zipline.co.uk. Have a good week. Goodbye.